I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. As today we're going to be getting to the preface, so to speak, the introduction to uh, Elijah's great conflict with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. These are the events that led up to that particular confrontation. The confrontation that uh, ended decisively showing the people uh, once and for all as if they needed the reminder that there is no God but God, that Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you do the vowel pointing, is the only God in heaven. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who sustained his people. He's the one who brought them into the promised land and the one whom they were denying or wavering over. But uh, first we're going to see, we're going to be introduced to a, uh, a man who comes in and then goes out very quickly within the Old Testament, but who was nevertheless important and a good example for us in many things, and that is Obadiah as well. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, no man can hope to exposit your word and apply it to your people unless you, Lord, have put your spirit within them. I need your illuminating grace, Lord. I need your, your leading. I need your help. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me uh, as a man with feet of clay, as a sinful messenger, uh, to convey this, this perfect, impeccable message. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase and that we would see the marvels that you did amongst your people and the way, O oh Lord, that they point us forward to how we should be following Christ here and now and living our lives even in the midst of a sinful generation today. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 18. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your master Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here, and it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave? And fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lived before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. 
So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here in Fayetteville, we have had droughts from time to time, but when we say we have had droughts, we talk about weeks or months where we have uh, greatly reduced rainfall or hardly any rain falling. I have watched uh, on occasion, almost despairing as my grass has turned from that you know, mild brown to the, the straw-y color. And uh, one of the, the signs of a terrible drought is that Gradually, your, your yard becomes a series of interconnected fire ant hills. I don't know what it is. Where do they find water? Have you ever thought about that? The ants? The entire yard is dead, and yet they're flourishing somehow. But that is nothing as compared to what was happening here in the Word of God, happening here in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, in Israel. There were three years of drought, three years in which there was no rainfall whatsoever, not even the the solace of the dew in the morning, leaving that little moisture. Most of the grass would not just have died turning a straw color. By this time, it would have all dried up entirely and blown away. You would have had uh, dust storms. The grass, we sometimes forget, holds the soil in place, and without it, when the wind blows, it all goes everywhere. That would have been happening all the time here in Samaria. The trees, particularly those with short roots, would have died. The fruit trees would have withered away by this time. The cattle and the sheep and the goats would have been dying. If they were kept alive, it would have been with imported grain, something that very quickly you would find yourself running out of. And only at this point, the deepest wells would still be drawing water. They would have had to have dug and re-dug and then re-dug those wells. Only the largest of the rivers would still be flowing at all. They were facing real hardship. They were facing imminent death. Now, God had warned Israel that this would happen. This was not something that should have surprised the, the people of God, the covenant people, the people called by his name. It shouldn't have surprised them that this drought was now afflicting them. Before they even entered into the promised land, Moses, on the other side of the river, the other side of the river Jordan, had amongst the curses that he had said would fall upon them if they turned aside from the Lord and went after the idols of the nations. He had said that they would have a drought. And I, it's, it's, it's terrible the way that it's phrased, but I, I love the, the adjectives, the, the way that the Lord says it'll be in that day. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 23, and your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You have that image of a, of a heaven of bronze, this burnished bronze, as the sun beats down mercilessly and gradually hardens the earth until it becomes like iron before them, and the entire atmosphere is filled with powder and dust. There is no moisture anywhere. Now, Ahab, of course, unfortunately, is not listening to the Lord, although uh, he, he uh, should have. He doesn't believe that the Lord God is behind these curses that are occurring to him. He is still clinging to Baalism introduced by his wicked wife Jezebel, even though her supposed rain god 
isn't producing rain, and that for three years. The funny thing is, have you ever noticed this, that somebody who turns against the Lord and goes after another philosophy, even when the philosophy fails to meet their needs, or the religion fails to meet their needs, fails to provide what it offered to them, yet it should. It should do it, so they keep clinging to it. More of the same, they say, will continue down this route to the very end, when in fact, what are they doing? They're going down the path of foolishness to destruction. Ahab is leading his entire nation down the path of foolishness to destruction. So, after about three years in Zarephath, Elijah is sent by God, because God is merciful to his people. He is sent to face Ahab, and lay down a challenge that should make it obvious, even to the most obstinate person, that Baal isn't real, and he can't do anything, and Yahweh is real, and he can do all things. But in that call of the Lord, notice the the Lord just says, go and, and tell Ahab these things. He's saying, leave Zarephath, where you've been living for almost three years, and travel from the frying pan directly down into the fire. I want you to go to Samaria and face this man and his wife who want you dead and speak my word to them. So once again, Elijah is being asked to put all of his trust in the Lord and do what he tells him to do, even though in a worldly sense, it it seems crazy. It seems filled with so much danger, and yet Elijah does it. Now, when the, uh, the, these verses open, we see that things have become so serious in Samaria because of the drought and the famine that Ahab is getting desperate. He is willing to go searching for, for water and for forage himself. He goes out with, in one direction and he sends his trusted servant Obadiah in the other direction and they're both looking for, for something. But, uh, but who is Ahab worried about? Who is he most worried about here? He doesn't say, the people are dying. My, my people are starving to death. Let's go see if we can find them grain somewhere. What is he most worried about? He's worried about the horses and the mules. Why is that? Well, it's because the horses pulled the chariots and the mules carried the supplies for his armies. So if they died out, or they had to eat them, as he says, what would happen? Well, it would mean his, his power would be significantly reduced. They'd switched over to, from being an infantry-based army to a chariot-based army, and if they didn't have chariots, how could they face their foes all around? And in Ahab, we see, unfortunately, what worldly leaders care so much about, and that is power and money. Ahab has put his trust in horses, and the Lord said this to those who do that in Isaiah 31.1. He said, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Egypt, incidentally, was the great source of, of horses, war horses, to pull chariots in the ancient Near East, and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord to follow that path, though it seems to be the path of worldly power is actually the way to woe. In Psalm 27, we are counseled and said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It is better to trust in him, obviously. But with him, he takes Obadiah, 
And Obadiah held uh, an important political post. He was, we read, over the household. In other words, he was essentially Ahab's chief of staff, his, his vice regent or his grand vizier. He was the immediate representative of the king. He had the king's authority clothing him. He probably bore the royal seal to certify the decisions of the king. He was an important man in Israel. But what should we think of Obadiah? We know Ahab was the wickedest of the kings yet. Omri had been a wicked king, but Ahab was even more wicked. What about Obadiah? Obadiah works for this king. Should we condemn him? Well, the answer to that question is no. Actually, we shouldn't condemn Obadiah. The word makes that very clear. It tells us, it sets right before us more times than one. It says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And it tells us that this wasn't just a fear that he didn't act on, that he was too timid to do anything in the name of the Lord. It tells us also that when Jezebel was out murdering the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. And when he greets Elijah as well, we see another indication that he loves the Lord. What does he do when he sees Elijah? He falls on his face before him and he addresses him with honor. Is that you, my Lord Elijah? And we know that he says that he was someone who had feared the Lord from his youth since he was very young. And so we know also the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a man who alone, perhaps, in Israel, amongst the upper echelon, was wise and God-fearing, even in the house of Ahab. So what do we think of him? Well, he was somebody who was, in many ways, very similar to Joseph. Who did Joseph serve? Joseph served Pharaoh. That's right. Somebody got it. Daniel uh, as well. Who did Daniel serve? He got three choices here. Nebuchadnezzar, Darius... And Belshazzar, right, in the uh, interim. Mordecai, who did Mordecai serve? Ahasuerus, right? And then, of course, we have Nehemiah, who served Artaxerxes. Now, what did all of them have in common? Were they Israelites, those, those kings that they were serving? No, they were pagan kings. They served false gods, demon gods. And often their actions were desperately wicked. Nebuchadnezzar throwing three good men because they served the true God into a furnace, for instance. These were men who did wicked things. Belshazzar, who uh, held that, that awful, that blasphemous feast where he took the articles from the, the temple and used them to eat and drink and to praise gods of iron and wood that didn't exist. And yet these men served those, those pagan rulers And Obadiah also worked for the wicked leader of a wicked administration. That has been the lot, unfortunately, of Christians since the fall. It is not always the case. In fact, it has been my experience that in politics, it is seldom the godly who make it to the top of the ladder. Uh, I found in Washington, D.C. that uh, the, the godliest of men quickly became disgusted with the place. And, uh, uh, and uh, many a time they would simply wilt in that particular environment. Unfortunately, it's usually the grabbers and the people who care for nothing but their own power who make it to the top of the stack. And that's always been the case as a general rule. The men who assassinated their enemies, the men who were willing to spend all of their time with political machinations. And certainly it's not often the case that you find a man who truly loves the Lord and who desires to serve him at the top of any administration. 
But nonetheless, even when our rulers are wicked, we are called to be good. We're called to be good citizens. We're called to do the best that we can to serve in whatever state we are called to. So in Colossians 3.22, Paul says to bondservants, and bondservants is a wonderful euphemistic phrase for slaves. He says this, speaking to Christian slaves, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So Obadiah is in Ahab's administration. The only, the only kingship in northern Israel was held by Ahab. And Ahab was not a man who loved the Lord. He was a man married to a pagan woman who was bringing in Baal worship. And yet Obadiah does all that he can for the Lord whom he loves in the midst of that administration. He had used, for instance, his position to save the prophets of the Lord. Uh, this was something that was necessitated by Jezebel's campaign. She was out to wipe out the worship of Yahweh in Israel, and he was out to do whatever he could to sustain it and certainly to save the ministers of the Lord in the land alive. He was rather like the, the Ten Boom family in Holland. I don't know if you've ever read the reading, uh, the reading place, the hiding place. <laughs> Have you ever hidden the reading place? No. Have you ever read the hiding place is the question. The Ten Booms, as you know, hid Jews within their house from the Nazis. Eventually they were discovered, but their efforts uh, led to, to many being saved alive. And they set before the world there uh, an example of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the Lord. There were the Scots families, many of whom during the killing times when the Covenant or Presbyterian preachers were being killed by the king because they would not acknowledge that the king was the head of the church because no man is the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But this was called treason in the days of Charles II and James II. And so they were hunted down on the moors and many families took their lives in their hands and hid those godly ministers because they knew of the good work that they were doing amongst their people. And so Obadiah, like them, hides these prophets and he fed them. Now keep this in mind, this is a hundred men, all right? And he hides them and then he feeds them with bread and water. And he was probably taking that bread and water from the king's own stores, and that during a time of severe famine. What would have happened to him had he been discovered doing this? Undoubtedly, he would have been executed, and probably not quickly. Let's put it that way. He would have been in grave trouble. He put his life on the line for the Lord's people. Why was he willing to do that? And the answer is simple, because he feared the Lord greatly. And when we say he feared the Lord greatly, we don't mean he feared in a, in a slavish way. No, it, it was that fear and respect that a child owes to, to a good father. That is the way that he saw the Lord. And no matter what all of his, his compatriots were doing within the administration, he was going to serve the Lord. Now, who were these prophets? They were probably the same as the sons of the prophets who crop up at First and Second Kings. They're not priests, all right? They're not part of the, the wicked religious establishment that had grown up in Samaria serving the Baals and, and certainly not serving the, uh, uh, the, the golden images that had been set up in, uh, uh, in the northern kingdom that were supposed to represent Yahweh. But rather, these were religious reformers, 
These were men who were dedicated to returning the people to the worship of the true God by teaching his word. They formed, we might call it a, a, a guild within the northern kingdom, uh, which is where they operated. And I, I personally think it would be best to understand them as being kind of like the Lollards. The Lollards were uh, men who uh, were trained by John Wycliffe in the 1300s. Uh, in England at a time when the common people were denied the word. At that point in time, the word of God was only available in Latin, and the average Englishman did not read Latin, did not understand it at all. Wycliffe painstakingly translated copies of the Gospels into English, the vernacular. And then he sent out these men, some of whom were priests, some of whom were clergy, others of whom were laymen, but who were trained to teach the word of God. And they went into the villages and they trained God's people in God's word. Something that both the crown and the religious establishment said should not be happening. And the, the sad thing is when they were looking for people who had been trained by the Lollards, one of the things that they would do is they would go into a family and they would say to the children, tell me the Lord's Prayer. And if the child could recite the Lord's Prayer in English, they knew that they'd been there. Isn't it sad when you're being persecuted and proven to be a traitor simply because you understand the word of the Lord. Well, that was what these priests were doing. And of course, Jezebel wanted them dead. She wanted to exterminate the word of God amongst the people. But Obadiah had worked overtime to make sure that these ministers of the Lord were not discovered and didn't die. Now, something to note here. Take this to heart. God, remember, had fed Elijah miraculously when he was at the Brook Cherith. Uh, he had sent ravens to bring him meat, and, uh, and he had given him water from the brook, obviously. And then he sent him to Zarephath, where a widow with a, uh, a jar of oil that never ran dry and a bin of flour. Incidentally, these were not magical items like in D&D. I have the bin of everlasting flour here or something. These were ordinary items that were uh, caused to be refilled by the Lord miraculously on a regular basis because the Lord was going to preserve the life of his prophet Elijah and show him that he had the power to do anything. And so therefore he need not fear. But he did not do that with these ordinary prophets, the 100 prophets whom Obadiah put in the cave. It was not swarms of ravens who came to the cave feeding them bits and pieces of meat. Rather, it was Obadiah. It is most often the case that the Lord uses ordinary means in our lives. When he wants to cure us of a disease, what does he do? He gives us a doctor who actually knows what he's doing and who prescribes the right thing or does the surgery correctly. When he wants to give us financial help, what does he do? He sends one of the people of the Lord with, with money or he gives us a job, a new job where we can earn more. But here's the important thing to remember, whether it's miraculous or whether it's done by secondary means, it's still the Lord behind it. It's still his hand. When we receive mercy that we did not expect, that is something that we should be thankful to the Lord for. You should be as thankful for the daily bread that you receive as Elijah was when ravens were dropping meat on him at the brook Cherith. Honestly, it is no different. The food that we eat, brothers and sisters, is from the hand of God ultimately. What is it that sets you apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ in different places who are literally starving? It's the mercy of the Lord. It's not that you're better, for instance, than our brothers and sisters in North Korea who are in gulags or in China who are in re-education camps. I don't have to go out and, and break rocks 
and gradually get worn down and endure the insults of guards and being hit with the butt of rifles and things like that, like uh, my brother in Christ Wang Yi does in China. Is that because I'm better than Wang Yi? I'm a better preacher? I'm more faithful? No. It's because of the mercy of the Lord. So remember that. Remember that whether it happens miraculously or ordinarily, it is still God's goodness. Now, Obadiah sees Elijah when he comes to him. And he was probably present when Elijah first appeared before Ahab and Jezebel three and a half or so years earlier. So he recognized Elijah and he's amazed to see him. And he falls down before him, not because he is worshiping Elijah, but because he fears the God who Elijah serves. That's the important thing. But he was probably amazed at his request, go fetch Ahab, I've come. And Obadiah is, is scared, not just for the sake of the prophet, he's scared silly to go and report to this desperate Ahab that he's seen Elijah, because he's afraid that Elijah will disappear after he goes away, and then a furious Ahab will say to him, you let him get away? This man who we've searched over the, the, the entire earth to find? Are you a traitor? You know, that, that kind of thing. Whose side are you on, Obadiah? And he probably would have put him to death. So he pleads, and he uses a bit of hyperbole here. There is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. Now, I, I think that's probably a little a bit of a stretch. I, I'm pretty sure he didn't send you know, messengers to China, India, Greece, and so on. But certainly all of the surrounding kingdoms asking, is Elijah here? And Elijah, hearing his, his desperation, makes a vow. He says, I will meet with Ahab today. Go and call him. And Obadiah trusts the man of God's word. And he does go and fetch his master, Ahab. And sure enough, Elijah meets Ahab. Now, when Obadiah had met Elijah, he had bowed down before him and called him my Lord Elijah, because as I said, Obadiah feared the Lord who Elijah served. But Ahab had no fear of the Lord. He hated the Lord and he hated his servants. Something I've experienced in, in my own life, you know, uh, it's one thing to be greeted by a member of the covenant community as a pastor, and another thing entirely to be greeted by somebody who despises Christianity and despises Christians, as I did when I was a child. No respect, no honor. In fact, the very opposite. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had have suddenly come to uh, a, a screeching halt when they asked me that dreaded question, so what do you do for a living? Oh, <laughs> I'm a servant of the Most High God, actually. Where'd they go? It happens, believe it or not. Um, my wife and I still remember a time on the beach where we were getting along famously with another family from North Carolina. We were at Myrtle Beach. And uh, so we're talking, and they asked the question. And then suddenly, after I answered, they began the process of edging further and further down the beach. And we're like, I think they're in Virginia now. That's, uh... <laughs> anyway, they went far. It happens. There's no respect whatsoever in the heart of a man who des desires to see the Lord's word expunged for the servants who desire to spread that word within the world. But uh, he, he says to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel, you who have caused this terrible drought to fall upon us, who are killing us? This is rather like the bank robber blaming the judge for the prison sentence not understanding his own part in it, or, or a lazy child blaming the teacher for failing grades. Have you ever experienced that one, incidentally? That, uh, I have. <laughs> anyway, 
Elijah, however, is not having any of it. He says, I haven't troubled Israel. He doesn't say you dimwit, but he, it's you and your fathers who have troubled Israel. You forsook the commandments of the Lord. You threw his word away. You followed the balls. The Lord told you what would happen if you forsook him and you followed other gods who were no gods at all. And surprise, 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 it did come to pass because the Lord is real. You, your wife, and your false worship and your hideous pagan worldview are the real trouble in Israel in our midst. You are what's causing this disaster, not the man who's pointing it out. So he's saying that in essence, persecuting Elijah is like firing the safety engineer when he tells you that, his, that your carbon fiber mini-sub is unacceptably dangerous and likely to fail the more you use it. Wait a minute, that happened. It, brothers and sisters, is often the case that we point at the people who are pointing out the problem and we say, you're the problem, when in fact, they are not. Now, let's discuss some of the most important applications of this section of scripture first. And I hate to, well, I don't hate to tell you this. I have to tell you this. If you are zealous for the Lord and his word and you want to live a godly life, you are going to be labeled a troubler at some point. It is just simply the case. You are going to be labeled a troubler by those who want to remove the Lord and his word from any organization, whether that be a church or a denomination or an organization or an army or a nation. If you continue to stand for the Lord and you continue to proclaim his word and you continue to point out as, as a good and faithful servant of God, the truth, you are going to be called a troubler. Isaiah spoke about the, the circumstance that occurred, and Isaiah, remember, is a prophet to the southern kingdom. They, too, were later on in time suffering from this. In Isaiah 30 and verse 8, we read, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come, forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an incident, uh, in an instant. One of the things that has happened or have happened in my life was in the time that we spent in the PCA, the many long years, um, it was my experience that you got labeled a troubler if you pointed out the deviations from orthodoxy that were going on within the midst. I, I came in like so many other men uh, saying, yes, we believe in the Westminster Standards. We believe in the inerrancy of the word and we will join hands with you and labor for the Lord on this common standard, the, the Westminster Standards. And then every year we would have meetings and people would come and say, well, we need to deviate on this point and we need to deviate on this point and we need to deviate on this point. And we would say, wait, time out. That's not what the word says. That's not what the, the confessions say. Oh, why are you being so divisive? 
You can't minister in an old school way in a, in a, a modern church. Come on. Come on, man. It doesn't work. Doesn't it? Are you guys really here or are you an illusion? It was this, this idea that we will forward the king's purposes and the kingdom of the Lord by deviating from his word. They really did believe that. And that that was the only way that you could do it. Well, this is not something new. Paul Settle, in his history of the PCA, uh, called to God all praise and glory, talked about the circumstances that led, uh, ironically enough, to the founding of the PCA. He said, unbelievers introduce error. The moderates, who are usually in the majority, let them do it. And the conservatives who protest are accused of being troublemakers. It was certainly this way in the PCUS in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. The liberals callously drove spikes of false doctrine into the tender flesh of the church. And when Bible believers flinched and cried, ouch, they were accused of being divisive. And unfortunately, I saw that happening again and again and again. It's not just the PCA. It's any denomination that desires to to follow the old paths. Inevitably, men will come in saying, let's change this, let's change that. Or women will come in saying, let's change this, let's change that. And when the changes don't occur, they become furious. And they turn on those who they see as standing in the way of progress. Don't we see that in our age? I would encourage you to read the Sabbath meditation at some point. One of the things that it reminds us, I'm not going to read the entire paragraph. One of the things that it reminds us of is the fact that this is nothing new. It's usually the, the, the best men in the church, like Elijah, who are called troublers, or more importantly, our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. You remember when they were brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, they were accused of bringing the blood of this man upon us. The apostles hadn't brought the blood of Jesus Christ upon the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had brought his blood upon them by their, their vicious actions in taking the Son of Man and putting him to death. So this is nothing new. But do not, because they want to hear the smooth words, they want to hear the falsehoods, do not turn and give them those falsehoods. You are not doing anybody any good when you preach smooth things, when you preach deceits. When you tell people lies, when you tell them that they're good enough, they're, they're smart enough, they're fine, you're going to be great. Who told you you can't have everything you ever wanted? You know, that kind of, what is that? It's a deceit. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And it sends countless millions in that direction. It may be what they want to hear, but it's not what they need to hear. And remember that difference. Secondly, it may be your calling to be the Elijah the man who stands on the mountain and who prophesies boldly, who calls down fire, who, who will not compromise and who has no place in the corrupt and wicked structures of this world. But then again, it may not. There aren't too many Elijahs that God calls. You may actually be called, in fact, it's more likely that you're called to be an Obadiah. Now, what do I mean by that? It means to continue to serve and to love the Lord your God, even as you are still part of whatever wicked and ungodly culture or structure the Lord has placed you in the middle of. You may have been called to do what you can in the midst of that circumstance, whether it be a foreign country, whether it be this country, or one of the organizations that exists within this country. It may be your lot to be an Obadiah or a Daniel 
to be, for instance, like the Dutch police chief who issued the extra-ration booklets to the Ten Boom family. The Ten Booms hid the profits, but without that Dutch police chief giving them the, the bogus ration cards, they could never have fed them. Or the Japanese guard who fed uh, Louis Zamperini and his fellow POW, and he made the, the sign of the Christian fish in the dust of the floor to show them why he was doing it. He was their brother in Christ. Or a man uh, that I knew, like Steve, uh, when I was uh, about to be fired from my job because I'd gone to a meeting, it was called a brown bag diversity discussion. This was in the 1990s, and I was told that it was going to be an open and frank discussion of homosexuality. Well, uh, more fool me. Uh, <laughs> it was not. It was supposed to be a uh, celebration of, um, of homosexuality in all of its uh, dimensions. And when I pointed out what the Word of God said, I was in great danger of being fired at that point in time. I publicly declared what the Scripture said about homosexuality. And what happened at that point was the VP of Human Resources found my name and said, fire him. But then my, my boss, she said, because... She wasn't a believer. She said, fine, we'll fire him. But my boss's boss, when he was told that I was about to be fired, said, why are we firing him? Did he not report to work? Does he not do his job? Blah, 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 blah. And she said, no, no, no. He, he went to this meeting and he said some hateful things about homosexuals. Well, what did he say? Well, he read the Bible. We're firing him because he read the Bible about homosexuality. We're firing him because he's a Christian. And they said, well, you could put it that way, I guess. And he said, well, then we're going to need to fire me because I'm a Christian too. He put his own job on the line. Now, that man had eight kids. He had a, a, a picture of his family behind him and so on. He was willing to do that, though. Why? Because he loved the Lord. They backed down when he made that stand. I was allowed to stay in that particular job. We need people like that in these days who are willing to take that kind of stand, who are willing to do all that they can for the Lord. A godly Daniel, a man with a godly character, a woman with a godly character, a child with a godly character, is a blessing wherever they are. But the value of that godly individual increases exponentially in the areas where Satan's throne is erected. You become an even greater blessing in those times. Now, the time may come when to continue to compromise becomes impossible for somebody. We remember, for instance, uh, there's a story, I'd, I'd invite you to look it up, uh, the story of the Theban Legion. They were a Christian legion re raised in Thebes in Egypt, and they served Caesar right up to the point where they were commanded to kill their fellow believers in Gaul. They were sent to wipe out a city uh, that had gone over to Christianity and refused to burn the pinch of, e of uh, incense and say Caesar is Lord. Uh, they were being asked to kill their fellow Christians simply because they were Christians. And at that point, they said, Caesar, we've served you through campaign after campaign. We'll defend the Roman, uh, Roman Empire to the very end. We are loyal to you, Caesar, but this we cannot do. We cannot kill our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they were decimated. Every tenth man was killed. And then they were decimated again. And then their leaders were wiped out. And finally, the entire legion was marched out onto the ice uh, naked and caused to stand there until they froze to death. Brothers and sisters, it may come to that point where we cannot compromise any longer and we have to be willing to be martyred for our faith. But until that time, we need the Obadiahs as well as the Elijahs, the men who are willing to stand firm, who are willing to go to the cross as Jesus went to the cross.
like the apostles, set the standard for us. And I would encourage you in these evil days to remember that. Remember the example that you were given. The evil of the northern kingdom is not too terribly different from the evil that we're experiencing in our society today. Your calling is no different. It is to serve the Lord, to honor his word, to continue to proclaim that word, to do everything that you can to support the ministers who are going out into the world and proclaiming the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and the only way of salvation. But it's always been the same. It's always been like this, brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters in Christ in foreign countries where they're enduring persecution can read this and say, yeah, that's the way it is. It's odd to us because we had that long, comfortable period. I would say we did not do too well in that period, actually. We, we, got very, we got very lazy as Christians, and we got addicted to compromise. Well, if I just give a little here, and a little there, and a little, 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 after a while, we're serving golden calves. So brothers and sisters, be willing to stand firm. The Lord has called you to wherever you are. Remember to serve him in that place. And if it comes time when you have to say, I can compromise no further, this far and no further, then be willing to take your stand at that point. Be willing to go to the stake. It was funny, when we joined the ARP, one of the things that I said is, uh, brothers, I'm just looking for men who are willing to be uh, tied to the same stake as me and get burned for the same reason without you know, saying, hey, I'm willing to recant at this point. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> That's, we need those brothers and sisters who will stand firm to the very end and will sing in the flames with us. We need that spirit again. And I pray that we'll find it here. Let's go to the Lord. God, our Father, I thank you that you are the one who has given the martyrs in every age the ability to sing in the fire, who has raised up Obadiahs and even the most unlikely of circumstances, men and women who have done everything that they can to honor you and to keep your word true. I thank you, Lord, for giving us those blessings. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the same kind of spirit we do need Elijah's, though, Lord. We need men who will boldly prophesy the truth, who will proclaim it like, like John Knox did in the very ears of godless Queen Mary. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a congregation and as a denomination not to turn from the truth, for no good can come from that. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name.